You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R, and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Episode 8, FLDS Part 1. The next two episodes of On Belief are about the same group, the Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. All of my guests lived in the same area, Short Creek, Arizona, which is on the Arizona-Utah border. This is one of the notorious compounds controlled by Warren Jeffs, who is currently in prison serving his 10-year sentence on two counts of rape as an accomplice. A lot of media coverage of the FLDS focuses on the salacious details of Jeffs' crimes and on the footage of dozens of women and their children being taken out of the compound. There are even semi-fictionalized shows on television focusing on women escaping the sect. What gets lost in this coverage is the reality of life for these women and their incredible stories of survival and triumph once they got out. For the next two weeks, you'll be hearing from three courageous women on their lives inside and their successes outside the compound, and hear what they want you to know about the FLDS in their own words. What we call the FLDS is a holdover from when Mormons, the Church of Latter-day Saints, ceased the practice of polygamy in order to help Utah achieve statehood in 1890. The Mormons, who disagreed with that decision, became FLDS. They clustered and moved into communities to be able to practice the principle of plural marriage, polygamy, and became very insular and more fundamentalist as they withdrew from mainstream LDS society. FLDS groups reside in Canada, America, and even Mexico. The group we're focusing on is the group that was once led by Rulon Jeffs and then his son, Warren Jeffs. We're focusing particularly on the Short Creek compound. It's rumored that Short Creek is the compound that was the inspiration behind the Roman Grant compound in HBO's Big Love. For the first hour, please welcome Brenda Nicholson, who was born and raised in the FLDS church, but who now lives a worldly lifestyle. Welcome, Brenda. Brenda, can you explain what life was like for you on the compound until you got married? So my father grew up in the mainstream LDS church. And so he was already, you know, bought into the whole basic idea. And my mother was raised, I think they were Lutheran, but they didn't really go to church. They ended up living on the same street. My dad grew up in Virginia. My mom grew up in Iowa. And then they ended up on the same street in California where that's where they met. And so mother joined the LDS church when they got married. It's interesting. My grandparents are gone now, but I remember my mother telling me that her parents were against her marriage to my father. And so they got married a week after her 18th birthday when her parents could no longer stop her. And I look back now and I look at the kind of guy my dad ends up being. And I thought, yeah, they might have known something. They might have been onto something there. But she became mainstream Mormon. He he went in the army. They came back, and he started working at the Boeing factory in Southern California as a janitor. 
And one day he came along and saw where they had the time cards in their slots and he saw the name Alma Thomas. And apparently, I didn't realize this growing up, but apparently in the Gentile world, Alma is generally considered a woman's name. But in Mormonism, it's a man's name because there's these men that are Alma in the Book of Mormon. And so he saw the name and thought, hey, this must be another LDS member. I'm going to wait around for him to come clock out so I can introduce myself and meet him. Only it turns out that he actually was a fundamentalist from the FLDS, which at that time we just called it the work or the group. We didn't have an official name. But so he starts telling him about what he believes and that, you know, the church has apostatized from the fundamentals of the religion, you know, and Joseph Smith got this revelation and God said it's never supposed to go away. And so there's this group of people out here in southern Utah that are living the true principles and I, however it came about, they, my parents decided that was the thing they should do. They tried to convert their families, you know, told them the good news. They now knew the real truth, but none of them wanted to join. And so they sold their house and moved from California to the Salt Lake Valley to join up with the FLDS, the work. I mean, I heard the story my whole life. and. I was made to appreciate and be grateful that, my, you know, the sacrifice my parents went through, they gave up their family, their community, everything that they had known, and they left all that behind to bring me to, you know, and, and the rest of my siblings that we were all brought to the feet of the priesthood and raised in the truth and how, you know, out of the millions of people in the world, here we happened, you know, the stars aligned and here we are and how awesome that should be. And and I was grateful for it. And I truly did believe in my religion. But I have to admit, there were days, you know, as you're growing up and we just had a house in a regular old neighborhood in the Salt Lake Valley. We lived out on the west side. Most of the saints, the other saints, as we called ourselves, lived more on the east side and so we and my parents didn't really know anyone we weren't related to anyone so we were really isolated through my childhood my father went to work we had one car my mother stayed home and kept having more babies she homeschooled us we had a garden and you know we had our sunday schools and our family home evenings and we were always being taught our religion or the gospel as they would call it and so i was raised up with a very clear understanding and idea of the principles of the gospel and what was expected of people to be saints and to be part of the work but we didn't know a lot of people and so we were quite isolated we weren't really allowed to play with the neighbors because they were wicked and what's kind of funny now to me looking back is we had several families on our street that they forbid their kids to play with us and we were like that is so terrible of them you know they weren't allowed to talk to us now I look at it now and I'm like yeah I wouldn't let my kids play with polygamist kids either to be honest you know now that I'm looking from the outside my father eventually got a job working at a machine shop that was owned by church members. So through that, he started meeting 
more people. We started being invited. There were people that would like have these baseball games at a big park and these get togethers for the people. So we started meeting more people and we met the Nicholson family. They invited us up in the mountains and we started doing a lot of stuff with their family. But both of their moms and a couple of their daughters were teachers at the Alta Academy School. And they probably saw how backward and awkward and weird we were and also could understand how overwhelmed my mother must have been with all of it. And they convinced my parents that they really should get us up to go to school with the other saints. You know, then we'd get some socialization, get our education, take, you know, some of the burden off of my mother. So when I was 12, I went into seventh grade up at Alta Academy, and I was so excited when I found out that my class had 24 students, 12 of them were girls, and 12 of them were boys. I was going to instantly have 11 best friends because we're all saints, you know, and we're all part of the people, and I had a lot to learn. Um, It didn't work that way. I was not welcomed into the fold, and I really didn't have very many friends. I actually made friends with one of the boys in my class more than the girls at that point. And that boy happened to be Clayne Jeffs, and he would tell me stories about the stuff that he and his brothers and uncles, his uncles were Rule and Jeff's boys, would do up there on the property and how they treated animals and stuff. And it was mortifying. But at the same time, he was the only person that talked to me consistently. And so it was really hard. He ended up not being invited back to school, I think, in eighth grade. And then I heard rumors about how he got in a lot of trouble. He threatened to kill not only was it his grandfather, but the prophet ruined Jeffs. And, you know, these were all rumors that I heard. It's interesting because now that I understand more, he was showing all the red flags and signs of being someone who had been sexually abused. But I didn't understand that. He was, I mean, to me, it was just, wow, what a wicked boy to to torture animals and do these horrible things. And so it, it was really sad. I mean, I heard that he took his own life, you know, and of course, according to our teachings, that was like the epitome of wickedness. So there you go. Start out being mean to animals and you're going to become this horrible person. I remember hearing um, about Brent Jeffs when he came out with his accusations against Warren. And of course, our reaction was, boy, how wicked do you have to be to come out with that kind of lies against such a good man as Warren Jeffs. And once I left the church and started understanding more, I felt really bad (laughs) for not just for what those guys went through, but that, I mean, I never said anything to them or against them publicly, but I actually messaged and apologized for having judged so harshly, even though, you know, but the the amount of control they have over over your your thinking and they they steer you in the right you know the wrong direction really as far as those things go they have to hide it so i got through school and that was it was hard because all of a sudden you're faced with 
the gospel doesn't seem quite as plain as simple as you were taught that it was. You're dealing with all these issues, people not treating each other very well. You know, basically you start to to deal with the reality of what life really is. And high school is never an easy time, I think, for anybody. Here I was, I didn't really have friends. Once I got in high school, especially, so Warren Jeffs is the principal. He ran the morning classes every morning, our, our you know morning devotional. And then he was the main high school teacher. Most of the, the classes I took in my four years of high school, he was the teacher of. And my experience with him was extremely positive. You know, he was the only teacher I dealt with that didn't have favorites. He didn't have a teacher's pet. He treated everyone very equally. I needed help with my algebra. I had his house phone number and I could call him and he would come to the phone and help me with my algebra. And I can still remember being so nervous calling him and he'd get on the phone and I would say, you know, hi, this is Brenda Taylor. I need some help with my algebra. And he would say, well, hello, Brenda Taylor. Are you being wonderful? And it just, and I was like, well, I'm trying, you know. (laughs) For me, he made me feel like I was worth something. I was just as much as important. My grades were as important. He didn't play favorites. And so that was the impression I had of him. And that stuck with me through my whole life. And so I always saw him as that at least I knew I could trust that he was honest. He seemed to, I mean, outwardly, he lived what he preached. He wasn't one of these people that said, this is how it needs to be. And then he's off partying. From my perspective, I could trust him. And he was always, you know, good to me until I think it was my junior year. No, it was early in my senior year, I think. We'd get our report cards, and they'd give it to us in a big manila envelope. And I I didn't think I had anything to worry about. I was getting good grades. I go home. I hand the envelope to my dad, and, you know, it's sealed shut. And then I'm in trouble all of a sudden. Mr. Jeffs had handwritten on my report card that I was the most open example of a flirt in the entire school, and that if I didn't knock it off, I wouldn't be invited to be at school. And I was totally blown over by it because the boys didn't like me. I was, you know, more on the quiet side. I was over here doing my work. And and then I, you know, my next reaction was to feel angry because when you're not part of the in crowd and you're not tied up in all the friends and everything. I could have told you at any point in time who liked who because I'm just there observing. It's pretty easy to tell. I had caught people in closed dark classrooms together and I had never done anything and why was he accusing me? And you know, this is a world where your worth is based on your purity. Being a flirt is a really bad thing to be accused. And so it was quite devastating to me. And I'm telling my father, I says, I don't, he's like, why, you know, you, whatever. And I was like, that is not true. He says, are you calling Mr. Jeffs a liar? And it's really hard to say, yeah, I am. But it's, it's like, I don't know. I'm not necessarily, I just, I don't understand why he said that. Cause I don't feel like I've done, I don't know how to change something. I don't feel like I'm doing, but my father didn't believe me. And he, I actually spent a fair amount of time with then he started making a lot of accusations against me. We'd been taught very well in school that our father 
you know, is your priesthood head. He's your connection to the prophet, which is your connection to God. You need to earn your father's trust and respect because the day will come when the prophet will ask your father as a good priesthood man, do you trust this son or daughter? And if your father says yes, then by default, the prophet will trust you and the Lord will trust you. And here I was in this situation where my father didn't trust me, but I hadn't done anything. So how do you fix something you didn't do? How do you earn that that trust back? And life was just hard all around. And I ended up attempting suicide at one point. But that's another thing I've talked to people about is that suicide is not a selfish act. I was completely convinced that number one, my parents would be better off. And yeah, they'd probably be a little bit sad, but they wouldn't have to deal with that embarrassment of having this wicked daughter. It wouldn't be their fault. We were taught that there was two things that were unforgivable, adultery and murder. Committing suicide was like the worst murder because if you killed someone else, you decided to end their life and take away their opportunity to have time on earth to prepare and be a better person. If you took your own life, that was just the worst thing you could do. So I was convinced that not only would I be saving everyone the trouble of having to deal with me as such a problem in their lives, part of the the gospel is that you have to be like super perfect to make it to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. If you make it to that degree, then you're resurrected with the ability to still have children. You'll be in an eternal marriage. You'll become, you know, you have to be connected to a man who becomes a god. And then you are a heavenly mother and goddess, and you will live on into eternities, having spirit children, creating worlds. That's the ultimate. That's what your your goal is. If you didn't quite make it, if you're pretty good, but you didn't make it, you would then be in a lesser degree of glory where you would be resurrected without the ability to have children, and you would be the servants who were there to take care of and serve those who did make it and become gods. I looked around at my life there, you know, for five years among, really among the people, seeing the way things worked and experiencing my own things with being accused of things and that I hadn't done and feeling like I had no recourse. And I started to think that it wasn't as simple as they always made it sound. And all that I could picture is that these girls that had treated me like crap all these years and got away with next murder and were still considered good girls, they were probably going to be the ones that still made it to the celestial highest degree. And I felt like I had been subjected to them enough and there was no way I wanted to spend millions of years going backward through the different degrees of glory as a servant to these people. I didn't want to have to deal with that. So I could take care of two problems, be out of the way of my family and stop being an embarrassment and a problem and be sent straight to to dissolution and the second death instead of spending millions of years having to be a servant to people that, you know, and see other people that were happy because they had been able to make it. For more on this episode, including the rest of the interview, bonus episodes, and bonus material, including production notes, head over to patreon.com forward slash K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R. You can find Unbelief on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, 
and YouTube. And you can visit the website at onbelief.com.